Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Man, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, I hope you have them with you. We're going to continue in our series in Luke, uh, starting specifically in eight, uh, sorry, verse 18, starting in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, my name is David Crock. I serve here as one of the elders uh, at Corner, along with my wife Holly and kids uh, who are at home because kids are sick. <laughs> as uh, Pastor Mike said, there's all of this crud going around. Uh, we'll start in Luke chapter 9, verses 18. Luke writes, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, the one, uh, one of the prophets of old who has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered for the very first time, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, uh, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in all his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we get to gather to worship you, to encounter you this morning through, through music, through your spirit, through your word. And God, we know that you're here with us today. We know that you're here to comfort us, to lift us up, to challenge us, to grow us, all the things that a loving father does for his kids. Lord, help us to fall before you today in humble submission to be open to your word, dissecting our hearts, cutting out what needs to be removed, pruning what needs to be pruned, so that more fruit will grow. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy that renews every single day. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started this morning, uh, I don't really know how to... Uh, even address some of you guys. Um, last night, an atrocious act took place in Pullman um, that affected some of you guys and is affecting some of you guys really bad. Um, it was evil, um, but God is on the throne. Heard it once said, and the worst days still the day that the Lord has made. Yesterday was the day that the Lord made. Today is the day that the Lord made. 
for those of you in the, the Pullman community, the Fenville community, the school system, uh, that they're affected by this, I'm sorry. Um, friends were lost. Family members were lost. Mom is wrapped in glory. Kids wrapped in glory. God loves them so much, and He loves you. He wants to be a part of this with you. Don't block Him out through your suffering. Lean into Him. As a church family, lean into each other. Be there for the, for the community. Be there for one another. Be there for the family how you can. Be there for the teachers how you can. God's in this. He's in this. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Uh, right. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. I didn't, know, I didn't know what to say about that this morning. I didn't have anything prepared for that this morning. Uh, until I saw some of our Fenville teachers sitting in the back. Broke me exactly 9.30 this morning. So, um, All right, Luke 19. Sorry, Luke 9. Uh, so part of uh, police officer training is crash investigation training, and I'm sure many of you guys have been involved in traffic crashes, maybe just a, a uh, fender bender or maybe a private property little bump, or some of you might have been involved in a high-speed, dangerous uh, personal injury accident uh, where... The, the entire scene could be um, 100 yards apart. Sometimes the speed of these vehicles caused this scene to be massive. And we don't know where it started, we don't know how it started, don't know who's at fault, but all we know is first thing, we want to make sure everybody's safe, get everything secure, and then we can try to figure out what exactly happened during this crash. One of the ways that officers figure out what happened is they find what's called the gouge. And the gouge, along with like skid marks, is usually made by a part of really hard metal on the car that, from the impact of the crash, gouges into the pavement and then continues the gouge through the pavement and ends up ending where the vehicle comes to rest. Sometimes that gouge is from the, the aluminum rim on a vehicle. Sometimes it's from a strut. Sometimes it's from... You know, part of the frame if this vehicle totally collapses. But officers find the gouge and they walk that gouge back and they get to the point of impact where the whole thing began. They follow the gouge back to where the whole thing began. Now, Jesus, along with revealing the reason why he came in the flesh, he also tells his disciples the reality of what following him will look like. He tells them that just as he won't be leading an earthly army into battle as they had hoped, they won't be marching in an earthly army equipped with swords and shields. Instead, he tells them that he will be leading his followers to their death. While he will be dragging his cross, his mode of execution through the streets of Jerusalem, they too 
will be following the gouge from his cross. While the weight of their cross will be too heavy to stand upright, their eyes will be fixed on the gouge from their Savior's cross. Day by day, step by step, we as disciples of Christ are called to carry our cross to the death of ourself and our old nature as disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Luke says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? Now remember, he just got done feeding the 5,000. Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do all of these people, who, do, who does the world say that I am? And they, they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets of old that has risen. Now the crowds will have many opinions of who Jesus is. You guys watch the intro video every Sunday, right? The crowds, the world... The community will have many opinions of who Jesus is. The world will say he is nobody, or that he never existed. He was fake. He was made up. Any good uh, historian will disagree with that, whether they're a Christian or not. Some will say he's a good person, a teacher, maybe an inspirational speaker. And I could stand up before you and say all these things to make you feel good. All right? I apologize. You're not going to get that today. Okay? Um, it's not really my style. Um, some say he's a prophet, um, a mouthpiece for God. Others say he was a heretic, a blasphemer, a lunatic, that he was power hungry. The world will spread their rumors. They will create their ideas. They will try to explain miraculous things with inadequate earthly reasoning. Just explain this away. But what the world thinks is not important to Christ in this moment when he's with his disciples. When Christ sits face to face with you in his word, in your time of prayer, in your church, he's not concerned with what the world, who the world says that he is. He's concerned with who you say he is. He says, but who do you say that I am? You disciples of mine. Who do you really say that I am? The thing is, we answer this question more with our actions than with our mouths. How we live trumps what we say every day of the week. How we live trumps what we say every day of the week. We can say that Christ is Lord of our lives, but until we actually live that way, until we actually see it lived out in the physical realm in our daily lives, then we truly haven't submitted to Christ as our Lord and Savior. What we do trumps what we say every day of the week. Who Jesus is determines how we treat our spouse, how and why we work, how we parent our children, how we respect our boss, how we get up every morning, and how we spend our time. And that's why he starts with this question before he goes any further with them. Before he explains his reason for coming to this earth. Before he explains the way that their life should look as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He asks them this question. Because this is the foundation of our faith. If we haven't come to the place 
where we're willing to look Jesus Christ in the eye and put the entirety of our faith in him and what he did on the cross for us as our personal sin bearer, as the one who paid the entirety of our sin debt, as the one who took the entire wrath of God, placed it upon his shoulders, died, went to the grave, buried, stood three days later and walked the earth and is now in heaven interceding for you. That's who Jesus Christ is. And for the very first time, one of the disciples acknowledged it. And it's Peter, the rock, one who Christ will build his church upon. Church, in order for us to be a rock, in order for our foundation in our faith to be rock solid, we have to be sure, we have to be confident we have to be completely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ in what he did for us. That is it. That is the foundation. That's why he starts with this question before he explains the reason for being here and our call as his disciples. You see, we can really only answer this question in two ways as a simple man. Right? Simple logic. Keep it simple, stupid. Right? My principle. I see some heads nodding. I like. Right? He's either a man. He's either just a man. Right? Historically, we cannot argue that. There, there's no historical evidence to argue the existence of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. There's just not. Right? He's either a man or he is what Peter says, the Christ of God. There is no in between. We're either in this camp or we're in this camp. Now some of us are on the journey from this camp to this camp. Part of our job as a church is to get you to this camp, to bring you to this place where you see Jesus for who he is. But it's going to be one or the other. He's either a man who taught nice things and was killed for it, or he was the Christ of God, the Messiah the Son of God, the Lamb who was sent by God the Father to die on the cross for our sin. And until we have answered the question, we can't live out the action. Until we have answered that question, we can't live out the action. Jesus reveals who he is and why he came. In verse 21, he says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying the Son of Man must, underline must, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus says the mission I must complete, the thing that I must do here on earth, the reason that I was born, the reason I'm here right now, is because I must be killed and be raised from the dead. Now, this was tragic news for his disciples. Right? We have hindsight. They did not. This was tragic news for his disciples. They had left everything to follow him. They had given up their business. They had given up some family relationships. They had completely abandoned their routine, regular, regular everyday lives to follow this Jesus from Nazareth. They had a vision of the Messiah. They were well-versed Jews. The perfect mix of warrior 
and politician. A descendant of King David who would stand up against the oppressive Roman Empire and he would defeat them with his mighty army of followers. The Jews would be finally freed from Rome's oppression and their king would rule and reign physically, providing safety, prosperity, and hope for his people. Being killed was not part of their vision. After all, a slain king was no king at all. A slain king could not lead an army. So under whose charge would the disciples operate? These are all things that immediately went through their head. So Jesus instructs them in verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, not only do I have to do this, but if you are going to come after me, if you are going to follow in my footsteps, this is where you must go to. My kids love to argue or uh, talk, argue about who's the line leader in their classroom, right? For you teachers, every week the line leader changes. The line leader is the They're the most popular person for that week, I guess, right? Everybody wants to be the line leader, wants to be the one in front, wants to be the one in charge, right? Wants to be the one leading the classroom, uh, you know, all the students from their classroom to music class or to gym class. It's a two-minute walk, but they're so excited about being this line leader, right? And we can poke fun at them, right? But that's how we live our lives as well, right? For some of us, Maybe Jesus is third or fourth in line. Right? So we say, well, well, Jesus, if you want to come after me, <laughs> right? if, you, if you want to go where I want to go, then you've got to fall in line in my footsteps. But that's not how Jesus says it. That's not how it works. He says, if you are going to follow in my footsteps, this is where you must go. And then he gives them four small instructions. First thing he says is, you have to come after me. You have to come after me. Now, I don't know about you guys, but David, me, does not like to come after anybody. Right? If there's an opportunity to be the line leader, David wants to be the line leader. If there's an opportunity to choose how my life is going to go, then David wants to be the one to choose how my life is going to go. Thank God I don't actually get to do that. But I'm, I'm not interested in being third or fourth. I'm not even interested in being second. Right? I argue with my wife because my pride wants to be number one, when in reality I need to submit what I want and allow her to be in that position for a minute. But I want to be the leader. I want to be the first in line. He says, no, if you're going to be a disciple, you've got to actually learn to follow. You're not going to lead anybody. <laughs> but because you're following me, you will be one of my disciples. If you're going to be next in line behind me as I walk, he says, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to identify with me, Tony Evans says, to follow King Jesus is to live according to God's kingdom agenda, which is the visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of life. Big words, simple man terms, right? 
It means that God's rule is visible in every aspect of your life. It means that when God's word contradicts your word, your word falls in submission to God's word and it changes the way that you act. If God says, if you want to go right and God says you need to go left, it means if his comprehensive rule and you're living under his uh, kingdom agenda and his visibly manifesting in your life, it means you're not choosing right, but instead you're choosing left, even though you want to choose right. It's physically visible in your life. It's not just something that you talk about, but it's something that you walk about. The second thing he says is you have to deny yourself. This means living as an others-centered person, specifically a Christ-centered person. It means placing others' needs before your own, thinking outside of yourself, realizing that the world doesn't revolve around you. Could you imagine being part of the discovery, realizing that the entire solar system did not revolve around the earth? <laughs> or imagine thinking that the entire world doesn't revolve around the United States. Or that your entire family doesn't revolve around you. We can take huge principles and make them really near to our heart. That's what he's talking about here when he says you need to deny yourself. I cannot obediently follow Christ if I am at the center of the universe. Because that puts me first in line. Right? If you're at the center of the universe, you're not following anybody. Everybody else is following you. You're putting Christ at number two, maybe number three, maybe number four. Your kids are in there, your family's in there, your friends are in there, your job's in there. But I'm in front. I'm going where I'm going. And then he says to take up your cross daily. Underline daily. The disciples would have immediately pictured a criminal carrying their cross to the place of their own execution. The criminal would not only carry the weight of the wooden cross on their shoulders, at minimum the cross beam, but they would also carry the shame, the reproach, and the burden associated with their chosen way of life. This was a one-way journey with no prospect of release, no opportunity for parole. Before the criminal hung on the cross, the entire weight of the cross hung on them. Jesus was saying that every day, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, every day when your feet hit the floor, you need to pick up the cross, the weight of following Jesus in a wicked, sinful world where deplorable things happen on Saturday nights in your community, where the weight of judgment from coworkers, from the way you live by following Christ, from the burden of discipline and the wrestling with your sinful nature, Right, the struggling through a marriage when it seems so much easier to quit and other people get to. Right, staying in a job that is hard and you don't want to be there, but you show up every single day and you work to the glory of God because he has you there right now. He says it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And that is the weight of the cross. That is denying yourself in taking up your cross. 
then he says, not only is it going to be weighty, he says, and not only do I want you to pick this thing up and carry it, but he says, I want you to carry it and to follow me where I want you to carry it. You don't, you don't get to just carry the weight of being a disciple and living through a sinful world, a broken world, broken relationships, suffering, hard times. But he says, not only do I want you to pick that thing up and carry it, he says, but I want you to carry it to a specific place. I want you to drag your cross in the same gouge that I dragged mine. He says, I want you to follow me. While you're carrying your cross and you can't lift your head, it's just keep your eyes on the gouge. Keep your focus on the one who carried and dragged his cross before you. Keep your hope in the one who is the Christ of God, as Peter said for the first time. One commentator said the phrase, follow me, is the challenge to have one's whole life, the entirety of their life, determined by and patterned after a crucified Messiah. Every single day, we have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to the cross and be crucified with him there. Not only do we have the weight of carrying the cross, we have the weight of the destination where he's calling us to carry our cross. Jesus moves into why we should do this. Verse 24, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, Jesus isn't talking about physical death here. Right? He's not calling us to carry our cross to a physical death, execution style on a cross, maybe. Some of his disciples did. But Jesus says, whoever would depend on earthly provision, whoever would depend on his own ability, his own path, whoever would desire to be the leader in the line, his own way of living, he will get to the end of his life and realize he never lived at all. He will get to the end of his life and realize that he never even lived at all. In other words, life begins when you walk to your death with Jesus. Life begins when you choose now to walk to your death with Jesus. Now in the unseen, in the eternal, this has already happened. Right? Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that you have been, that he says, I, right, as Paul's writing, right, alive and well, sitting at a table writing, he says, I have been crucified with Jesus. Christ. So, no, you weren't. It says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, how in the world is it possible for Paul to say that I have been crucified with Christ when he's sitting at a table writing this letter to the church in Rome? How is that even possible? But when we responded in faith to Christ, 
when we put the entirety of our trust for our salvation, the payment of our sins on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, we were crucified with him in the heavenlies, in the unseen. We were buried with him and we were raised to new life with him with a new spirit, with a new power. The Bible says with the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been placed into you as a disciple of Christ. The way we actually see this, this reality played out in real life, in our seen realm, is by daily picking up our cross, by keeping our eyes on the gouge from the Savior's cross that went before us and carrying our cross to the death of ourself in our old nature. You see, in this text, he's not calling us to go to a cross and physically be crucified and die. That might even be easier than what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to lay down our self, to lay down David, to put our desires and our control and our selfishness away and nail it to the cross. This is that you, that your life, would be crucified on that cross with him. And then instead of you living, once you die, once you willingly go to that cross as Christ did, and you're raised with him in newness of life and empowered by his spirit, now it's not even you living, but it's Christ living in you, through you, as you. That you don't have to do anything. Because he did it all. Christ lives through us to the extent that we dies in us. Right? Christ lives through us to the extent that we dies in us. You tracking with me here? If you refuse to die, if you refuse to lay down your old nature, if you, re if you refuse to lay down yourself, Christ is not able to live through you because it takes the Holy Spirit reviving you from the dead. It takes going to the cross and dying. It takes being empowered by the Holy Spirit and raised from the dead in order for Christ to live in you. So Paul says, so it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Because the old me was crucified. The old me died. Verse 25 says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? It says you can have the most, the most self-driven life, right? the most lavish, your, decide, your decisions, right? your way of life. You can have the most self-driven life but if that's where you find your life now, you will have no life to show for it in the end. And you have to ask the question, is that a good investment? Is that a wise investment? Jesus talks about this in the parables all the time. How are you going to invest your time here? Because the return is eternity. The return is forever. I was meeting with a friend of mine this week, just talking, having lunch, and 
we were, we were talking through this passage a little bit, and he was telling me about a time uh, in a previous job where he was having a really hard time. He, he was miserable in his job. It was physically destroying him. It was mentally destroying him. It was spiritually destroying him. It was, it was destroying his marriage. It was destroying his family. It was destroying everything in his life. But, he said, he said, man, I made great money. <laughs> I was able to pay all of our bills and then some. He's like, I had so much time off that I could do whatever I wanted to do. We could vacation everywhere. We could do anything we wanted to. I could do anything I wanted to do. The benefits were great. He said, the retirement, man, the retirement was fantastic. The pension was going to have me set. But he said, but my marriage was dying. My family was dying. He said, I was physically dying from this job. He said, but I, but I was clinging to it so tightly because it had all of these things that I thought were so, so important. And he said, and I was a couple of years away from being invested in it, so he's like, well, how, how, talk to us, well, how about just a couple more years, just a couple more years, it'll be fine. Gets a couple more years, and I said, well, well, but now our kid's a little bit older, right? we need more money, so yeah, now, how about another five years, right? Oh, now I got promoted, so now, man, even more, this is better, I got more time now, I'm moving up in seniority, right? And it just continues to snowball and snowball and snowball. And luckily, finally, God woke him up and God encouraged him, challenged him to take a step of faith and get out of there. And he gave up money. He gave up a lot of those benefits. But what he gained was his marriage. What he gained was his family. What he gained was things that actually had eternal value. So church was that a wise investment. <laughs> That's the question on the table here. Verse 26, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Verse 26 gives us the opposite of verse 24. I love the simplicity. Right? There is no in-between. We're either, we're either living verse 24 or we're living verse 26. Either you will be crucified with Christ as his disciple, either you will, you will learn to follow after him and to obey him and to be empowered by him, or you will be judged outside of Christ as his enemy. Sobering. And this is what baptism is supposed to be about. I kind of wish I would have included this part earlier. But baptism, it, we say it's an outward expression of an inward transformation, right? It's an outward expression of what Christ has done on our inside. Baptism is showing, right, it's a picture that we have believed in Jesus Christ as the Christ of God, that ourself was crucified with him on the cross, that it was buried with him in the grave when we go under the water, and it was raised with him to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the, from the dead. And now daily we pick up our cross. 
We put our eyes on the gouge, and we follow Christ to the death of our old nature. That's what baptism is supposed to be about. Baptism is supposed to be a funeral. It's supposed to be the death of our old nature. It's supposed to be the death of me. But then Jesus says, but on top of that, you're going to have to do this daily. Right? Don't be so prideful to think that, well, as long as I do this on Sunday, then that's going to carry me through the week until next Sunday. It's not going to carry me through, I promise you that. Right? This text, this week, this message is not going to carry me through the end of next week. Everybody says, every single day. Right? Our faith is a daily faith. Just like Mike was talking about our time in the Word, daily. Right? Our daily prayer. Jesus Christ went alone to pray, and then his disciples interrupted him. Right? Every single day, we pick up our cross. Every single day, we lay down that time. Every single day, we take that step to follow after him, and we walk in the gouge that he walked before us. That's what he's talking about here. But church, before we can bear any fruit, we have to bear our cross. We have to die so that Christ can live in us, so that Christ can live through us. In verse 27, he finishes with, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I said in the first service, I don't want to elaborate on this too much because Davis is getting into this next week. I, I almost just said, just start with 27 next week. So, Because I'm, I'm thinking, like, why is this even in here? Why, I feel like this could have just, just finished at 26. But for some reason, Luke includes this. In this statement, Jesus is most likely referring to Peter, John, and uh, James, who actually experienced the entirety of God's glory in Jesus Christ with, uh, with Elijah and with Moses just a, about a week later. And for some reason, he includes this, and, and I'm, I'm preparing through this. I say, why, why would he include this? Why is this part of this? But like you and I, the disciples were human, right? They were fallen, they were sinful, they were blinded, you name it. Right? Just like you guys, you've probably been sitting here thinking about examples in your life of things that need to die. Parts of you that needs to be crucified with Christ. The disciples were thinking the same thing. They were thinking, how, how in the world could I give up this thing to follow him? How in the world could I look past this to follow him. And, and they're saying, this, this is so stinking hard. <laughs> That's just it. Right? This, this is so stinking hard. I'm, I'm saying for me to you, for me, this is so stinking hard to do. Especially in the moment. Because we say, we say, God, if you would just show me Show me the entirety of your glory. Show me the entirety of who you are. The entirety of your power. Right? Show me what's going to happen, not only in this step, but God, show me how this affects the entirety of eternity. How does this look in five years? How does this look in ten years? Right? Show, me, show me what this looks like tomorrow. <laughs> right? But he's saying, but daily, daily. 
But we say, if you would just, just show me all of those things, then I'll, then I'll invest in you instead of building my own kingdom. It says, or, or God, if you would just take away this obstacle, right, this, this thing that's keeping me from this, then I would pick up my cross and follow you. Or how about, God, if you would just end my suffering, then I would give you full access to my life. God, I shouldn't be suffering, we say. Or maybe, God, if I can just get my savings account balanced to this number, then I would trust you to provide for me once I've provided for myself. (laughs) This is what he is asking you to crucify. He's asking you to crucify your need to have special revelation or vision from God beyond the promises of his word. He's asking you to crucify your desire for him to remove the hard things in your life that he's placed there for a reason. To crucify your prosperity gospel that even just a little tiny bit believes that you shouldn't be suffering because you are a good Christian. And to crucify your dependence on money for comfort or power or control. This morning we have to ask ourselves the same questions that Jesus asked his disciples that are sobering, sobering questions. He first said, are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus? In the entirety of what that means, are you willing to do this? Because it's a choice. And secondly, are you willing to lose your life for his sake? Are you willing to lay down your life the way that you think things should go, the way that you think your life should look, the way that you think your family should look, the way your job should look, the way that you dreamed of this white picket fence reality should look. Are you willing to lose that? And if you are, when you pick up your cross, when you step foot out of your bed and you pick up your cross, keep your eyes on the gouge. Keep your eyes on the gouge in front of you because the one who made it is leading you right where he wants you to be. Right where he wants you to be. Pray. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.